Sometimes going to the grocery store can be chaotic. There doesn't seem to be enough time to check the list, make sure everything is there, search for the best prices, and take the time to make sure you get the best quality meat. So let ButcherBox help you out. Giving you peace of mind, ButcherBox delivers high-quality meat and seafood that you can trust straight to your door. No grocery carts required. Humanely raised, no antibiotics or hormones, 100% grass-fed, free-range, and crate-free, what more can you ask for? What about free shipping, customized box plans, exclusive member deals, recipe inspirations, tips, and tricks? You really can't go wrong with ButcherBox. Sign up at butcherbox.com slash morning cup and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free for a year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breasts, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com slash morning cup and use code morning cup to choose your free for a year offer plus get $20 off your first order. In the 1970s and 80s, a monster hunted the Connecticut River Valley. Seven bodies found, one survivor, and no suspects. I'm Jane Borowski, host of Invisible Tears. I was seven months pregnant and stabbed 27 times, and I survived. My story didn't end that frightful night. This attack on me physically and mentally lingered for years. I'm Amanda Bedard, and I'm Jane's life coach and co-host of Invisible Tears. Jane is ready to share her story, and not just about her attack, but her healing process afterwards. As a platform for truth and healing, we are on a mission to help others that suffer from PTSD and help bring awareness to mental health issues. To hear my story and others, you can find Invisible Tears wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Today, I want to take a second to talk to you guys about the amazing Dark Mother Clothing, aka my new favorite place to get unique and gorgeous t-shirts. Dark Mother Clothing is an alternative shop for moms, dads, and kids that specializes in a variety of unique designs like their signature mama and baby bat matching shirts, along with embroidered tees, print tees, all over print patterns, enamel pins, and much more. The owner, Lauren Wyman, got started with the brand after a brush with anxiety and losing her identity to motherhood, while her daytime job told her she needed to wear brighter colors to be more approachable, something I think most parents can empathize with. So many people today are faced with putting aside their true selves in order to get ahead, but what they don't tell you is that in doing so, you're chipping away at the factors that make you uniquely you. So instead, she created Dark Mother Clothing as an ode to living life and being proud of who you are while creating a space for herself, as well as other alternative moms out there. Recently, she has launched a few new collections, like the Critter Folk Collection for Pet Parents, a Halloween Tarot Card Collection, and a complete line of reimagined Halloween Zodiac designs. I was sent three shirts from her shop, all of which I had been eyeballing for forever. And let me tell you, they are some of the softest, 
most comfortable shirts I have ever gotten, and I cannot wait to wear them as we venture back out into the world of park days and playdates. Be sure to check her out on her website, www.darkmotherclothing.com, or follow her on TikTok and Instagram, at darkmotherco. As a listener of this show, you can use the code CUPOFMURDER for 15% off your order. Remember, that's CUPOFMURDER for 15% off darkmotherclothing.com. There were two more murders 15 miles away. When police arrived, they found the telephones and electricity lines. We have a... Weird homicide. Scene described by one investigator as reminiscent of a weird morning. Cup of murder. Many real life murders serve as an inspiration for horror movies and spine tingling thrillers, but not many can inspire a comedy. On June 18, 1917, a woman was sentenced to death for her crimes. Crimes that would inspire a hit comedy play and beloved movie. So, if you like your coffee hot but your bones chilled, sit back and start your day with a morning cup of murder. Amy Dugan Archer Gilligan, better known as Sister Amy, was born on October 31st, 1873 in Milton, Connecticut, as the eighth of ten children. In 1897, she married a man named James Archer, and together they had a daughter later that same year. Starting in 1901, the Archers became caretakers, despite having no real qualifications to do so, after being hired to look after elderly widower, John Seymour, moving into his house in Newington, Connecticut. Unfortunately, John passed away in 1904 after three years of care by the Archers, but his heirs were inspired by their father's last years of life and converted the home into a boarding house for the elderly, keeping the Archers as the caretakers. For an upfront fee of $1,000, the couple would care for any elderly who needed a helping hand. And in exchange, the archers got to live in the house and paid rent to the Seymour heirs. They called it Sister Amy's Nursing Home for the Elderly. It seemed like the perfect situation and the archers seemed like kind, selfless caretakers. I'm sure you could see where this story is going. The people in the archers' care died at a predictable rate for a nursing home and no one really worried when someone passed on, assuming it was just their time to go. Amy was known as a wonderfully nurturing woman, keen on giving her patients tonics and nutritional meals to help make their last few years on earth as pleasant as possible. And since the idea of a nursing home was still relatively new, not only did the archers have no problem filling their beds, but it wasn't a business that was really regulated. In fact, the only record of a family becoming suspicious was in 1909 when a family sued the archers due to lack of care for a family member, but the case was settled and the couple agreed to pay the family $5,000, which is about $133,000 in today's money. In 1907, the heirs decided to sell the home, and using their savings, the archers moved to Windsor to start their own care center, the Archer Home for the Elderly and Infirm. Together, they ran their successful business, and when James Archer died in 1910, of apparently natural causes, Amy cashed in on a pretty hefty insurance policy that she purchased just weeks before his death. With that policy, she was able to continue the Archer home and soon welcomed a new man into her life and into her business. In 1913, she married widower Michael W. Gilligan, and the wealthy man was keen on investing in not just his marriage, but in the Archer home as well. 
Unfortunately for him, his marriage only lasted three months after suffering from acute bilious attack or severe indigestion and passing away. Amy once again cashed in on the sudden death of one of her husbands. This time, it was Michael's entire estate. Michael, who had four adult sons, who would probably have been better served to receive the payout than his wife of just three months. It would later be determined that Amy Archer Gilligan, unsurprisingly, forged Michael's will. Now, while the death surrounding Amy didn't initially raise any eyebrows, after a few years of watching residents come and go at an alarming rate, the residents of Windsor started to grow a little concerned. Between 1907 and 1917, there were 60 deaths at the Archer home. And while some could have been from natural causes, families started to worry, especially when that number jumped up drastically with just 12 dying between 1907 and 1910 to 48 just between 1911 and 1916. Among those dead was Franklin R. Andrews, an otherwise healthy man who entered the home in 1914. On May 29th, Franklin was doing some gardening at the home when the robust man collapsed and rapidly deteriorated, dying that same night of what was determined to be a gastric ulcer. While most of the lodgers were somewhat infirm and many with no close family, Franklin was a different story. While he was somewhat crippled, Franklin was just 60 years old and was considered to be the picture of health, enough so that he did chores and ran errands for sister Amy. Not only that, but he and his family were close, so when his sister Nellie Pierce found out about his sudden passing, she came to the Archer home to clean out his belongings. When she did so, she found some correspondence where Amy was pressing Franklin for money. Concerned, she took the letters to the state attorney, and when they didn't listen, to the Hartford Current. On May 9th, 1916, the publication put out the first of several articles on what they were calling the murder factory, causing enough concern that the police felt the need to investigate the Archer home and its allegations. A full-blown investigation started and the bodies of both Michael Gilligan and Franklin Andrews were exhumed along with three other boarders. All had been killed by either arsenic or strychnine. It appeared that those lovely home-cooked meals Sister Amy delivered were laced with poison shortly after she received her payout. And when evidence was found of Amy sending boarders to the drugstore to buy large quantities of arsenic for, quote, killing rats, it was enough to arrest and charge the loving caretaker on May 8th, 1916. Originally charged with five murders, Amy's lawyers were able to reduce that to a single count of murder for that of Franklin R. Andrews. There was far too much evidence against her for his case for the court to ignore. On June 18, 1917, the jury found Amy Archer Gilligan guilty and sentenced her to death, a sentence she appealed shortly thereafter and earned herself a new trial in 1919. At this trial, she was able to plead insanity and her own daughter testified that her mother was addicted to morphine. She was found guilty once again, and this time sentenced to life imprisonment. In 1924, she was declared temporarily insane and transferred to the Connecticut Hospital for the Insane, where she remained until her death on April 23, 1962. In the aftermath of her trial and death, many believe the case against Amy was circumstantial at best. The arsenic detected in the exhumed bodies could have been due to the fact that, during that time, 
arsenic was common for the embalming process. Others think it was all too coincidental and that the caretaker was a greedy murderer. The case itself became the inspiration for a man named Joseph Kesserling, who, in the late 1930s, traveled to Connecticut to talk to people involved in the case and study the court records. After learning all he could, he wrote the play Arsenic and Old Lace, though he took quite a bit of poetic justice. The play opened on Broadway in 1941, where it stayed for three years before being turned into a movie by Frank Capra. Thank you for joining me in my morning cup of murder. Please join me again tomorrow to hear what terrible thing happened on June 19th. Don't forget to rate and subscribe and let me know how you like it. If you want to help support the podcast, there is always Patreon or just sharing it with your true crime obsessed friends. And remember, stay safe.